0: ParkPal is a companion iPhone app for trips to Disneyland Paris. You can check live attraction wait times, find out schedules for shows, character meet and greets and parades. You can see restaurant opening hours, menus and prices and you can scan in your fast passes and set reminder alerts. ParkPal is available for free from the App Store. Welcome to Shoot First, Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. My guest this time is Katharina Kubrick. She's a photographer, a painter, and a jewellery maker. And she's worked in the art department on movies like Dark Crystal and Midnight Express and Supergirl and The Muppet Movie. And of course, she's the daughter of filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. If you want to see the portraits I've just shot of Katharina, head to www.sftl.photos and also open up that Apple... Podcast app and hit subscribe, then you're never going to miss an episode. We've done the shooting, now let's do the talking. Hello, Katharina, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you.
0: Thanks for having me down here. We're sat here in what well, would be standy's old uh, screening room.
1: It was the screening room where he we used to watch movies on the weekend and um, where he would look, check prints on the Steenbeck, and now it's the library.
0: So you're you're obviously very creative. You've you've been a, a photographer. You're a painter. You're a jewellery maker. I am. Was was that something that was quite encouraged when you were a kid, or did you have to just s- sort of seek it out for yourself?
1: Well, imagine growing up in a in a house that's basically a, an art school and a and a film school all rolled into one. So I, you know, had a painter mother, still have a painter mother, and um and a film director dad. So the entire house. The whole atmosphere was about being creative, and so it just became naturally. I was surrounded by my mother's paints and crayons and my father's cameras, so it led of course to a life of creativity i I'm, I'm and I'm really bad at math, so I didn't have a choice.
0: My math is crap also <laughs> <laughs> but i think I think that's i think that's quite it's that quite prevalent across creative people we We don't really like rules, so science and maths are very rule based and creativity they' you know you, you want to push those rules away
1: i don't I don't even think i i think as deeply about it as that I'm just no good at it <laughs> <laughs> i and I also went to Many schools because we traveled all the time, so I think 13 uh, altogether. Christ. Uh-huh. So I was either in an, uh, the English kid in an American school or the American in an English school, and so I never really caught up. But I can spell in both American and English, which is
0: it's handy to have. It's
1: handy to have, um, yeah. So it, it, it's, um, I don't know. Some people are, are naturally talented and think maths is beautiful, and you know you ask me a a, a math question and my I get steam coming out of my ears.
0: Were your your sisters were they quite creative as well?
1: Um, yeah, my middle sister, my late middle sister Anya, um, who sadly passed away in two thousand and nine, but she was a singer. So my two sisters um, were very musical and uh, Vivian also, you know, and they were learning how to play the piano and they were dancing and they went to the ballet and the tap and all that <laughs> stuff. And <clears throat> so, uh, but I was I was at the stables, I was mucking out horses and, you know, polishing saddles and things. So I was at the outdoors one and they were the musical ones.
0: I've heard your quotas saying when you were 18, you had a, a crisis of confidence.
1: I so did. Imagine growing up in my family uh, with these two incredibly overachieving parents, Um, I didn't know what to do. I really, I came out with my, you know, one and a half A-levels, and I really didn't have the first clue. I know I didn't want to go in front of the camera um, or be in in movies. And anyway, so I was weeping, and, and Daddy said, you know, what's the matter? And he said, look, just make a list of all the things that you really enjoy doing, And let's see if there's a career somewhere in there. And I had been taught photography and printmaking and I was already very artistic and I had done my own A-level art. And it inexorably led to sort of either wanting to go into the theatre or into film. Um, And it wasn't until... I started working on Barry Lyndon when I was 19 and I saw the real machinations of how an art department works and Ken Adam was the set designer and we'd all moved to Ireland and so I was a spare 19 year old who knew how to use a camera so my dad sent me off to look for film locations and so I would have to report back to the art department every day and I saw how it worked and it was for me, incredibly exciting, because it covered all the bases, because you got, so I got traveling, I was meeting incredibly interesting people, I was getting to photograph in this particular instance, very cool places, and I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. So when that finished, I went to art college, and um, I studied history of architecture, I did a bit of drafting, I went to an architect's office, got farmed out, learned a bit of technical drawing, Um, and then my first legit job was as the runner on Spy Who Loved Me. 19- oh wow! In 1976. I'm a
0: big Bond fan.
1: Five hundred years ago. Oh my god! So <laughs> long ago.
0: To talk me through what you did on on the Spy Who Loved Me, it must oh. have been shot round. Must have been shot in, in Pinewood, right?
1: Oh well, yeah. Um, let me see. So I was the art department junior. So uh-huh. basically, um, a gopher for the 17 men in the art department. But I got hired because I could draw. Mm-hmm. So I had skills. Did and I'm not just talking about, you know, tea and coffee skills and go for this and go for that. Um, and I was put in charge of photographing the creation of the 007 stage at Pinewood. Because there, there had been a big outdoor tank at the back of P- Pinewood. yeah. And so because they needed this big tank for submarines these to-scale submarines that they built, they then put the big stage over it, and it's now called the 007 stage. And I was, you know, one of my tasks was to photograph its erection. Um, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, but I did all kinds of things, and I was drawing up details, and I was, you know, doing the bloody tea and coffee and fetching the bacon sandwiches, and... Was that for
0: Ken Adam again?
1: uh, Yes, absolutely, Ken Adam, who was extraordinary. Um, And... I can tell you this, that the W07 stage was built. The set was built with the submarines in it, and we had a big opening. And Ken called my dad and said, I don't know how to light it. Uh-huh. I don't know how to light this set. I mean, he wasn't the lighting cameraman, but as the designer, obviously. So he asked dad if he would go down, and dad said, you know, you've know, got to be kidding me. I can't just you know go down into somebody else's film set and tell them how to light it and ken and he were very good friends and i can tell the story because ken has told this story you know he's passed away too now but i can tell it because it was already out of the bag <clears throat> and so dad went down one time and walked with ken adam around the set and made the suggestions of how to light the set
0: where was the the regular dop
1: i don't know <laughs> I don't know Um, But I'm sure Obviously he wouldn't have known Mm. And as far as he was concerned This is I'm assuming here That he would have assumed That the lights were Just part and parcel Of the set Which is what Dad suggested Is that Oh I see The practicals Were the lighting
0: So Ken Adams Wanted to know It wasn't the case that Where should I put
1: the lights It was huge Yeah so he wants to know Where where should I build the lights
0: Into it So we light it naturally Yeah Rather than
1: having Big fat film lights Yeah and a set that large, you, you couldn't possibly have lit it. Well, I can't mm. imagine how you would light it with, back in the day, they had brutes, you know, these massive, great, big lamps. Um, and so it was, it was an exciting time, and I was on, I was on that film for a, a year. And one of the cool things I got to do was I was given the job of designing Jaws' teeth. No because way. <laughs> Because it was a sort of throwaway job for the junior, um, the that, sketch artist was. But too that's busy. such an
0: integral part to, <laughs> like Bond Mythos. Now no, there you go,
1: there you go. So it, you designed. I did. It was it was me, <laughs> and it, it was. Can Adam? It was just a throwaway line in in the script. Right, Jaws has metal teeth. Yeah. It, it, the writer wasn't thinking about maybe well, how did. you make it well, exactly. So I get called in and, and they said, oh, you know, everybody's too busy. Can you can you do this? So I got the photographer on the set to uh, take a photograph of Richard Keel grimacing, showing his with his mouth open, showing his teeth. And then I set to work just making loads and loads of drawings and then doing overlays of his photograph of different types of teeth because I obviously he had to wear them mm. and be being a giant. His his jaw was slightly different to other people's. Um, and, you know, you'd have to wear these things. So I knew they couldn't be sharp and pointy, for instance. So then I got to thinking about cogs, mm. interlocking cogs. Anyhow, so long story short, I did some color overlays. Um, and then I had to walk the plank down to the dining room where the Bond table was, where you had, you know, Cubby Broccoli and the director and basically all the heads of department sitting there. And I had to show them these designs of mine for the teeth and... Uh, They said, that's great, and there you go. Boom. (laughs) Yeah, Richard hated wearing them. They were incredibly uncomfortable. And funnily enough, um, somebody who's actually a a customer of mine who buys my paintings um, went to some fair in the States and met Richard Keel, who's also passed away now, sadly. And he was signing autographs and signing posters. And so I've got a poster of a drawing of him where he said you know dear katharina great job on the teeth you know love richard keel <laughs> how do you so measure his mouth that's all that to the dentist that's oh, okay. i just so had to do the, the design dentist, oh yeah. yes and then you had a special guy i mean he he would take them off the minute they stopped shooting i mean i should imagine they were incredibly uncomfortable
0: that's insane i had no idea no <laughs> idea that you did that because i I love Bond. So (laughs) that's just so But it turned
1: into a really iconic figure because actually he was only in two of the Bonds. Yeah. He was in You Love Me and then the next one that I worked on was Moonraker.
0: Mm. He's such an iconic part of the Bond. Especially Roger Moore's era.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: insane. Um, So from there you went on to which film?
1: Oh. Oh, yeah. So I actually did a bad thing and I didn't, I wasn't getting in. I didn't want to, Feel that I was getting anywhere on on um, one of the films, and I wanted to, you know, extend. I didn't want to go backwards, and I was still, you know, being given odd jobs to do. So I left that picture, Moonraker, and I went to work on a film, which was going to be a spoof sci-fi movie, and it was called Saturn Three eventually it had a a different title to begin with and it was one of those movies where everybody was doing their job for the first time so john barry who had been the set designer on clockwork orange the production designer on clockwork orange wanted to direct and he had hired young Stuart craig who is now a multi-oscar winning production designer himself as the production designer and then um I went on, and I became from suddenly I went from junior to assistant art director. So, and I I was just getting lots of really good, cool jobs to do. But,
0: what was, you said it, that, but it, why is that f- wrong to do that?
1: Well, because you don't leave a film.
0: Oh, I see. You left. You yeah, left. Um, yeah, Spider no, 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 Me halfway no, no. through. No, no, no. Moonraker. Moonraker.
1: Yeah, I mean, they practically... I think you could be forgiven, to be Yeah, honest. but they practically didn't speak to me again. I was, you know, persona non grata for a time. Anyhow, so I moved from, Sheppart- from Pinewood to Shepperton. So there I was at Shepperton working with the fabulous Stuart Craig, who was an absolute sweetheart and very talented designer, obviously. And what happened was that Stanley Donan, who was a film director of some note, had agreed to produce John Barry as a director. And he did that because they were friends, because John Barry had been the production designer on Stanley Donen's picture, Le Petit Prince. So it was a first for everybody. Everybody had gone and up several notches. Mm. And it was supposed to be a spoof. Anyhow, there were all kinds of changes. And then they started shooting. They changed the cast. It had Kirk Douglas, Farrah Fawcett Majors, and um, Harvey Keitel.
0: Oh, wow. Must have been an early role for him.
1: yeah. And I think, as my memory serves me, the Farrah Fawcett Majors character, because she was married to Lee Majors at the time, she had been changed for the the woman who had played um, Hot Lips, Lips Houlihan in M.A.S.H. And anyway, it doesn't matter. But there was a change <laughs> of cast. Okay. And so we start shooting, and it's supposed to be funny, sort of dark humor, sci-fi spoof thing. And I think that... Stanley um, Donan couldn't not direct. So I think he was getting in John Barry's face. Anyway, long story short, John Barry left the movie Uh. and Stanley Donan took over directing. And then the whole thing changed from being a spoof movie to a dark, menacing, scary one. So we in the art department were all working overtime trying to make the whole thing darker and more scary and (laughs) and more menacing in the robot. I mean, it's... But I had a great time and I learned a lot.
0: I was about to ask if, if, you, oh. if you learned a lot. Oh,
1: yeah. And at the same time, because we were at Shepperton, they were filming the first Alien movie. And okay. so now it was terribly exciting because you couldn't go on the set. It was all very hush-hush. We used to see this tall, skinny guy wandering around. and go, just, you know, what he's, what's he doing? And, of course, the... The, the sort of rumours that were rife at the studios about the stuff that was going on on the <laughs> Alien set and, and Giga, who was this, was this very dark and macabre Swiss artist who'd yeah. been brought on to design it. Um, I mean, it was fantastic, but we all knew that they were making a better picture on those stages <laughs> than we were making.
0: <laughs> so it's quite, it sounds like it was a, a really exciting time in terms of film in this country. Yeah, yeah, that it was. A lot of American films were suddenly being made over here.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, Stanley moved over was because he really respected the film crew that were here. And uh, he liked living here. He liked, you know, my mother said he liked the weather. And and we were all, you know, young and we were going to school. And and he just preferred the system here. He didn't want to live in Los Angeles. And he didn't want to be in New York anymore. And um, so they moved here when they started making um, Lolita.
0: Oh, wow. So uh-huh. 61, there you go. Yeah,
1: well, I remember coming over, my younger sister had just been born, so it must have been 1960. But we, ba- we, we went backwards and forwards between London and New York all the time. So we moved from California in 1960, we went to London, lived in St. John's Wood. Then we went back to New York and lived on the west side on 84th street and central park then we moved back to london and we moved to kensington we lived there for a while and then oh, we wow. moved back to america to <laughs> live in new york and we lived on the east side on lexington and then we moved back in 1964 so there was a lots of toing and froing
0: why was that to what, what uh, was that for
1: m- movie making
0: just cuz he was making movies uh, over here yeah so what period this was so Six, so
1: it, um so 1964 he came, and that's when he started 2001 at MGM in Boreham Wood. And then in 1968, we go back to the States, to, to New York, to release the movie. I think we were in, in New York for about a week for the premiere. Then we went by train to Los Angeles. We were in Los Angeles for a while. Don't ask me how long. Then we came <laughs> back, and we were living in a weird house <clears throat> on Long Island. And then at the end of 1968, I came back because I remember starting a prep school in Radlett. So I must have been... How old was I? 1968? Eight, nine, something like that. So,
0: What does that do to you, that that to and fro in? Did you just expect, I mean, did you think it was normal? Did you think, you know... If it's you, you, your
1: life, you don't know any different. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we had a lot of tutors when we were in between schools. And uh, we never flew because Daddy didn't like flying. So we always went by ship. Oh, so God, the Queen, How long did co- that take? Uh, four or five days. <laughs>
0: it's cool only four or five days <laughs> oh no it's brilliant oh
1: it, it's the only way to travel really oh it's fantastic it's fabs I can't even begin to tell you how much fun it is unless there's a storm in which case you're just puking but you know. what did
0: you do for four or five days on the ship
1: oh my god I learned how to cha-cha-cha I learned how to do poke I play poker <laughs> I went to the to the games room I lounged on the sun deck and had bouillon brought to me under you know when they have great heavy blankets I mean think Titanic but without the ball gowns
0: or the, but, or the sinking
1: <laughs> or the sinking yeah. why wouldn't he fly? because he had had a pilot's license when he was younger and he had he was he was shooting little documentaries and he did photo shoots for the newspaper and he had a pilot's license and I think one of his very very first shorts was called um, "The Flying Padre following this guy around uh, around the states and then I think his One of his friends or his close friend was killed in the plane and they sent him, they sent Dad all this guy's you know, personal effects. And I think the last time he flew was to go to Spain to film bits of Spartacus. And Mum said oh, he was an absolute nervous wreck and that was the last time he ever got on an airplane. So we always went by ship, it was great.
0: Is that why he spent a lot of time here in in St. Albans once he got here?
1: Well, he, he was a homebody, really. Um, he liked being at home and he, would, he arranged his life. And a lot of people say that it made him a hermit, which is, you know, you can't be a hermit filmmaker. There's no such thing. Mm. Um, but he arranged his life so that he could live in a house where he could have his studio, his offices, his editing room. He could have his secretary he could have his assistants my mother could have studios and paint we could have all the dogs and cats that we had and and we could all live here so it was we just went from one one house to a slightly bigger house and it meant that you know he could sleep in his own bed at night i mean what's crazy about that
0: (laughs) what's nothing crazy i I hate leaving my house to be honest there you go let's go back you you were born in germany Mm -hmm. You you were born in germany and it's obviously well documented. Stanley wasn't your biological dad. No, he's my stepdad. Step your stepdad. Mm. Um, do you remember life before Stanley?
1: Not really. I I was four, I think, when m- mum and dad m- married. And I mean, she tells me stories. That there's a th- that's the thing about memories: is you don't know, do you remember it, or do you think you remember it because you were told the story? Yeah. You know, one of your parents says, oh, you did this. And you think, oh, yeah, I did that. But did I really remember it? I I don't know. Mm. I do remember being in the house in California before my sisters were born with Daddy sitting me on his knee and saying, call me Daddy. Because I had called him Stanley, like my mum. I do remember that. And it was quite funny because, well, obviously many years later, I'm visiting the set of Eyes Wide Shut in I'd, the 90s uh, yeah, yeah and i dropped my kids off at school and they were shooting at Luton Hoo, which was near to where i lived so I, I went and visited and i was standing on the set and, and i just sort of called him and i called him dad or daddy i can't remember i used to say daddy and <laughs> he said you know don't call me daddy on <laughs> set <laughs> so yeah but my i mean my earliest <laughs> memories were i mean at the moment Maybe they'll get clear my maybe my early life will get clearer as I get older, so i I couldn't, yeah, not many more, just snippets, lots of little snippets, I mean, my birth father didn't make contact with me after um mum married, so I didn't see him till I was sixteen.
0: How did that come about? I don't know,
1: I can't remember I just he he was in London, I think he wanted to see me.
0: Are you just went for dinner or
1: something? No, I went to Germany and to see him and his new wife and my two half-sisters. So I had four half-sisters. Wow. So two by my birth father and two that I was raised with who were, we had the same mum. Yeah. So.
0: And you, after that, you didn't want any, any contact or it just...
1: No, I, I saw him a few times, yeah. um, my birth father, and, um, and then he died in 1977. I was actually in Malta working on Midnight Express when he died. So I I I never really knew him very well at all.
0: So there wasn't that emotional connection. Well, the, it was respect. weird
1: seeing him because the first time I saw met him, it was Christmas. It was the it was the Christmas I turned sixteen, and I was in Hamburg, and and my stepmother was absolute sweetheart and made me feel really at home, and I suddenly met this tall man, and I understood for the first time why I look the way I look because everybody said oh you look like your mum I so oh, don't I look exactly like my wow. father <laughs> same nose same teeth same hands it was a it was a bit of a revelation um and you know we sort of I mean we got on it was a very I mean how do you form a relationship with somebody you don't know yeah um we had horses in Conway he he was a keen horse rider and so was I so we kind of bonded on that and he was um, he was fine, so but he's you know, died too soon.
0: When did you realize that Stanley Kubrick wasn't just dad, but he was to people outside of your family circle, Stanley Kubrick? When did that kind of realization of what his job entailed hit you?
1: Well, I always kind of knew that we weren't like other families.
0: In what in what way?
1: Well, we always had more TV sets, <laughs> <and> radio, because <laughs> Dad was such a gadget geek. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. But it, no, but we did, we did. There was, you know, a million cameras everywhere, and and wherever the latest gadget was, you know, it, it was, it was there. And so he would have I loved, could, like, he would have loved I, the iPhone and stuff. Uh, and because we yeah. went to film studios, yeah, and we visited. So I knew that he made films, obviously, and and because of the sort of people who came to the house, and you know, and I got to meet movie stars. So people like who? Well, anybody who was in. The movie he was making at the time, mm-hmm. so you know James Mason and Sue Lyon and Peter Sellers and Keir delay and all those guys. And I met um Paul Newman. Oh my God! So we were living in New York. We were living in uh-huh. so we were living in New York, and I was on on Lexington and Eighty Fourth, and and I was in pigtails and roller skates, and I skated into our apartment, and there was a bearded Paul Newman sitting on the sofa talking to Dad. And I went oh my god yeah <laughs> so I called my friend who lived on the 8th floor we lived on the we lived at the top penthouse and and but I didn't know that she had loads of little girls anyway so our flat got invaded by all these giggling girls because we were too young but we knew he was a movie star yeah. so it
0: would be like Zac Efron being in your, in your room there you go yeah. so
1: um it was yeah I got in a I got in a bit of trouble about that <laughs>
0: What was it like when when you finally settled in um, in Hertfordshire here? And what was it like, sort of balancing the the film side of your life and the, I guess, the ordinary school side of your life? What did the kids at school think of of your, your I don't your filmmaking? I life?
1: don't. Well, I went to so many schools, but th- the school that I went to in St Albans um, it didn't didn't mean anything when you're that age. It just as it was only when I became a teenager that it became um, a thing, and well, the filmmaking thing uh-huh. became a so thing. So that I had a filmmaker dad, a film director dad, yeah. and I think it became quite noticeable because I I moved schools when I was fourteen. I went to King Alfred's in Hampstead, and there were a lot of kind of show business kids, show business kids there anyway. Yeah, so it wasn't such a big deal. Um, but I do remember that our History teacher took my class to see 2001 because he thought it was cool. It was a cool school. Yeah. I, mean, I, did, I did really like it there. Um, but it's, it's, it's like everything. You're, you, you can't compare your life to anybody else's, really, because that's the only thing you know. I, I mean, sometimes I had wished for a slightly more normal life and a bit less frenetic. Because our house was a, a sort of just a, an, an office with bedrooms really <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm ser- I mean it was always nice obviously it was very homely and it was very comfortable and we had lots of dogs and cats and you know my mother was always painting but when I lived in uh in Elstree the top of the house was five four two four six no five tiny little rooms one was my bedroom. Another one was my studio. Another one was Androsi Paminol nurse's office. The other one was my uncle's office. And the other one was my, was daddy's secretary's office. So I had to walk through three office, past three offices to get to the bathroom, wow. which was downstairs. <laughs> the garage was turned into an editing suite. Um, the cottage had been turned into my mother's, downstairs had been turned into my mother's studio. But upstairs were, you know, the PA and the typist and whoever was, working on whatever film was being made at the time. So it was so like a family business.
0: Very much so. And you were kind of straight well, into s- that. Well, I
1: was, yeah, but I was, you know, I was a kid. I was going to school. I was trying not to do my A-levels or O-levels. <laughs> I would get any, you know, if he, if, if he was shooting, I would take every possible excuse to go and visit the set. It's amazing I never passed anything at all.
0: Which is the first one you visited? Well, all of them. But which was the first one?
1: That I remember? Yeah. Doctor Strangelove. No, 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 uh, Lolita. Because hmm. I remember Sue Lyon gave me, gave me a really nice little present of a sort of stationary set or something. Um, and I didn't have anything to do with Spartacus, but I do remember when we were in London that I would be taken to Shepperton to visit the set of Doctor Strange Love.
0: Love that one. Mm-hmm. Love it. Mm. So you worked on Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. And then from there, like we said, you, you, you've you spoken about, you went to work in the, the film industry. By the time that The Shining came around, mm. were you too busy to work on The Shining?
1: Uh, yeah. I was. I, I did one job where I was sent... To, I was looking for locations. So I was sent to... On The Shining. On The Shining. So I was sent <clears throat> to Phoenix, Arizona. Well, Scottsdale, Arizona, actually. And I was sourcing um american artifacts um indian tribal rugs and just stuff to fill the hotel with yeah and so i was in i was in arizona for a while then i went to la and i was in la for christmas i think and then on boxing day i flew to anchorage in alaska and there i was looking for the garage for Halloran to come back to when he when he gets the shiny and he comes yeah. back from Florida from from holiday, and so the shot of the airplane landing in the snow and Halloran's garage where he goes and you know talks to people. So I was looking for that location. So I was there for several weeks, had a fab time, experienced my first volcano um, not a volcano earthquake, which wow, really scary. <laughs> um, but the whole time I was there, it didn't snow. It was t- very very cold. It was t- twenty or thirty. Below and I was taking photographs and being very careful to wind the film on incredibly slowly so it didn't snap in mm. the camera because I didn't have a, a motor wind um, in those days. It, it it never came about because I was there for weeks. I was. Um, accepting um, films, uh, rolls of film stock to keep in the fridge of the hotel. And after it was, I think, three or four weeks, they said, look, it's not going to happen. You better come back. So the day that I left... What's not going to happen? The, th- the snow. Oh, Because w- it was going to be for a second unit. They were going to send a second unit to Anchorage, to this garage, and shoot the scene.
0: He wouldn't have... Danny wouldn't have come over... No way,
1: no. no, 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 no way. So it was always going to be second unit. Yeah. So I was about to leave, and, and I had a goodbye party, and everybody, <laughs> and it was really sweet. That's really sweet. And <laughs> I get it, oh, no, it was really sweet. And and, and um, that morning, I mean, I was packed. He, Dad, Dad said, you know, go back to the garage and measure it, so we'll recreate it at, in the studio. Oh, that's a good idea. And so I had to call these people up, say, I'm, I haven't gone yet, I have to <laughs> go. <and laughs> one more favor to us. And uh. so I went back to this particular garage, took the photographs, measured it all up, and that's the that's the garage that you see in the film.
0: Wow! So mm. you, you designed the teeth. <laughs> you had a hand in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I mean I I just found it because I did lo- a lot of location research, and I also did location research for um, for Metal Jacket. Oh, really? As well, yeah. I was sent off to look for places to shoot war scenes because he was at one point thinking of maybe shooting it in Spain or in France. Um, and I I did a lot of traveling around, but it was, I couldn't find anything that what, was suitable for him. What was he looking for? Rice paddies, rice fields, typical case. I went to Las Marismas in Spain because uh, we'd seen all these wonderful photographs of these incredible fields. And it turned out that it was a wild n- nature reserve and wildlife. When I got ah. there, it was summer and it was dry as a bone. And I said, look, they're not going to sh- let you explode things here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, And his answer was? Uh, n- oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> or words to that effect. I, I, We were sort of a family business. If, if you weren't doing anything and you walked past his office, you said, you know, you were put on a Xeroxing job. Oh, God. <laughs> Back in the day when Xerox machines used to jam and you'd have to put powder in it or they'd sh- catch a light or... Paper would, you know, get all mangled up. So you knew if you had twenty scripts to do that you'd only have to get halfway through it before the machine would pack up on you.
0: Was it a case that you would avoid going up to the office because I want to go ride my bike? Today? You weren't allowed to be lazy. All oh, right,
1: <laughs> the work ethic is and, strong in this house. <laughs> and you would know.
0: You'd go hang on a moment. No, Wait, you, Vivian, you're not here. doing
1: anything. Yeah, you got or was it, You got a minute. It'll take you five minutes, and you knew that four hours later you'd still be doing the same thing. It was great though because. How can you not learn in an Mm. atmosphere like that? Did the
0: Kubrick name help you when you were working in the industry?
1: I thought long and hard about changing my name Mm. on my first movie, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, which was my first sort of legitimate movie because I was very aware of that. Not only did I have the name, but I was a girl, which Mm. was an absolute sin back then. And I realized that it would have been completely useless because... When I went into the bar at the studios in the evening, I knew half the people in there who'd known me since I was a kid. So it was pointless. But what it did make me realize is I had to really prove myself. I had to work super hard, you know, try hard. And Dad used to say, you know, arrive early, leave last, wear a sack, you
0: know. Wear a what? Wear a
1: sack. (laughs) What? (laughs) To be less girly. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He was was a dad after all.
0: (laughs) Um, what was he what was he like as a dad compared to the boss
1: I don't know he was he was quite strict when I was growing up and I'm the eldest of three girls so he he wasn't too happy with me the idea of me going out on dates so that all happened quite late for me
0: what was it like if you brought a boy if you brought a boyfriend home
1: I mean it's poor guy I mean he would get you know Third degree, or just the look, or you know, I I could see in Dad's face eyes. that this was you know yeah you have got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I so he never very, approved. No, no, not never, not never. I mean, be, if he d- did approve, of course, it was the kiss of death for the four, p- the four poor guys. So yeah, I think my sisters had it easier than I did
0: because they were younger,
1: five and six years younger than me. Yeah. Oh, well, quite mm. a, a, a mm.
0: substantial. Mm.
1: Yeah. Mm. So I I I broke the waves i made the path for them you and were the they, guinea they, pig yeah well yeah they got away with murder honestly
0: and, yeah. did you get on with your sisters quite well
1: yeah yeah it was it was i was off and out while they were still at school i was working and i was you know traveling so mm. i mean it was really nice when we were all much younger um but that when you're adolescent that age gap is is Quite significant, I mm. think. So, if you're 15 and your sister's 10, you know the You don't want to hang around with it the 10-year-old, well, do exactly. you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then I was working, and they were still at school. So, yeah, there was quite a gap.
0: Was so it a case you sort of reconnected later in life?
1: Well, we we all were always together. It's just that we were interested in different things. Yeah. Although my sister, my younger sister, did s- sort of make. Well, she was a, a musician and she wrote music, and she was a. So, Anya. Uh, Vivian. Vivian. And she um, made a documentary of Making the Shining mm. when she was quite young. So, she was quite handy with a camera. And she also wrote some of the soundtrack. So. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Talk
0: to me about the period just after the release of Cockroach Orange. From your perspective, when did you realize that there was this whole controversy?
1: Because oh, I, I could read the newspapers. And um, I had spent an inordinate amount of time hanging out on that set partly because I had a mad crush on the one of the sound men um <laughs> but also because it was fun and most of the locations were quite close to home mm. so I spent a lot of time
0: that was over here uh, in, in England yeah, yeah yeah uh
1: i mean the um the writer's house was was a house in Radlett which was well, and we were living in Elstree so it was literally just down the road down i mean the road, it couldn't yeah. have been sort of more straightforward really i remember when it came no it came out and like most of stanley's films it caused a kerfuffle you know they've almost divided down the middle people loved it people hated it i wasn't allowed to see it because i wasn't old enough and you were in it Mm -hmm. well yeah for two seconds But, but um still in it i couldn't really understand what the fuss was about because i had watched these scenes being filmed and i probably didn't realize the the intense importance or how violent they were um for people who hadn't watched them being filmed, who were seeing it for the first time, when you see a, a, a scene being rehearsed several times over and then it's shot, and then you know it, it, it stops to be a thing. And I saw scenes as the film was being edited because the editing suite was in the garage, and mm. I used to pop in and talk to Dad, and he, you know, we'd watch a bit. But then it was the, the, the tabloid press got in on the scene, and and there was Mary Whitehouse and Lord Longford, and they were trying to clean up. The art and arts in general and they were blaming films on social ills and there were copycat crimes people dressing up in the dr- drugs uniform and it got very nasty and the, there were really really nasty articles in in the red top papers and daddy was getting threats and i I wasn't aware that he was getting threats because he didn't tell us stuff like that.
0: Death threats. Yeah. Okay.
1: And then he went to the. And then no, it was the police who said to him, "This is not funny. You've really got to um, take this terribly seriously." So, in the most unusual step ever. Stanley went to Warner Brothers and said, "Look, you know, my life is becoming incredibly unpleasant here because I've got people sitting outside the gate. I've got photographers, you know, who chase my family around. Uh, could you take Clockwork Orange off the screens in the UK? Wow. And it had already played for a year at the at the West End. It had done its run. Yeah. And people think that it was banned. It wasn't banned. In order for Stanley to." Feel that he was safe living in the UK. Mm. He asked for it because because the atmosphere was was terrible back then in the country as a whole, and I and he just said, you know, can you do it? And they had such respect for him, and they had such you know they wanted him so badly to be their director, and they they honoured his wishes. So it only came off in the UK, and nowhere else. I don't know if,
0: if that would happen now. If a filmmaker would turn around to a studio and say, could you take it off the screens? I'm not sure if that would happen.
1: Um, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the the esteem with which that director is held mm. by the studio. Um, I think if a director was being threatened, they probably would. But you know what? You just have to write a tweet now and, and there are people out there who will yeah. threaten to kill you. So the li- life has changed dramatically. People are being threatened to kill, being killed all the time.
0: A few years after the whole clockwork thing, the production of Barry Lyndon had to move from Ireland back to the UK because of the IRA. Mm. Did things like that not deter your dad? Did he not think, maybe I should just pack this all in? It's not, it's not worth it if my family are not going to be safe.
1: Um, we Well, he did. He took steps and we left Ireland. Um, and it wasn't a direct threat as such. I wasn't there. I'd already come home as I was back in the UK because I'd gone back to college because I'd sort of done my my location bit yeah in ireland and uh and i remember that i that the secretary said oh you know your dad's moving and i said where to?" you she said i can't tell you one of those things and what had happened was is that one of the cleaning ladies in the house that we were living in at the time in ireland said that some men had come to the house pl- posing as window cleaners or chimney sweeps or gardeners or something and they said they recognized them and they that there's no way that they said who they said they were yeah. and of course we had an, an English crew and you know back in the day the IRA and you know, the troubles was yeah. was incredibly it was, quite um, tense. it was very tense yeah so you know she said they don't mean you any good so dad said okay let's go so then they, the production moved to Salisbury. And then I left Art College and started looking for locations all around the UK. I mean, there was a team of us. I mean, there were at least four or five photographers yeah. who were doing it. And so I was photographing stately homes and dirt tracks and fields and cottages. And, you know, you get a page of script and say, go and find something here. So we were based all over. But I literally went from, you know, Land's End to John O'Groats and side to side.
0: Great fun. Great fun. Great fun, it sounds. A bit lonely sometimes
1: yeah. on the road, on your own.
0: Yeah, well, that's a freelance lifestyle. Yeah,
1: I would stay in strange hotels and this was you know you could fill your car up for a fiver and um (laughs) uh and this was in the day before you you know pubs were open all day where you could get something decent to eat where you know a sandwich in a motorway cafe was some sad curly thing so (laughs) yeah grim help me
0: (laughs) it's not as glamorous as people think
1: no or you're you're in some scuzzy station hotel to um photograph the next place and it's full of salesmen who are on their own who see a, a very young woman sitting on her own Oh no it's no fun no fun <laughs> no fun <laughs>
0: <laughs> throughout his films there's a real strong uh sort of theme um a complete mistrust of authority where what? did that come from
1: i think that's pretty fair well don't you mistrust? don't i have a mistrust
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I think most creative people do, but, but specifically with, with him, there's, it's it's almost in almost every movie.
1: I think he realised that as human beings, we are probably the most flawed of all the animals, and given our, the size of our brains, we still manage to mess everything up all the time. And I think he could see that, and that most people aren't logical, and they, they act on their emotions, or their greed, or their... I mean, you only have to look at a certain head of a certain country just mm-hmm. now to see how that works. People make mistakes. You can get an incredible, I mean, one of his famous things was that, you know, there you had somebody like Napoleon who was incredibly smart and also made huge mistakes and failures, very emotional decisions. And so he, I think he would take a sort of an overview of people's, reaction to certain situations and see look and, the, and he what i like is that he leaves the audience open to make up their mind but he doesn't spoon feed you what you're supposed to think about any of his films yeah. so that is why you can revisit them over and over again so for instance dr strangelove i think now is probably more appropriate than it's been in you know since the cuban missile crisis mm-hmm. i mean this is this is heavy shit <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> print out the t-shirt well exactly and I think people <laughs> I completely should be, agree with you I think people should for, be force fed it every day when you have a man who's in charge of you know the, the nuclear codes and I know it was a black comedy because when they were making that film they say this is so bad this whole idea that you know mutual annihilation mm. is so terrifying How can you, how can you make a serious film about this because everybody would just be weeping so let's put the dark humor on it and the dark twist. And it's as fresh today as I mean, when it came out, I remember there were articles saying that, you know, Stanley should be shot for treason. Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did he see his films in the same way that other people see his films in the sense that they are, you know, standalone works of art? did he Did he view his work in that way, or did he go, "I've made the film, I'm moving on to the next one now.
1: Well, I couldn't possibly answer that because I wasn't inside his head. Mm-hmm. All I can say that from the point of view of somebody who was a creator is that when you are creating something, whatever it is, hopefully you're doing your best. and hopefully you're pulling out all the stops and you know that that the phrase "that'll do" does not even come into your head and it took him a long time in between movies to find stories that would really enthrall him if you think of the length of time it takes to make a movie and how many people are involved and how much time it takes and how much money it costs you have to be absolutely certain that you're going to love this thing um and that's not to say that you know there aren't really boring times i'm when i've doing a really big painting I get to a stage where I can't stand looking at it anymore but you know you're committed you have to finish yeah. it and you can't have a bit that looks a bit sloppy because you got bored with that bit but I think all art once it's out there once you as the creator and the artist have said okay I've done my best it's finished you then it's not yours anymore you have relinquished it because you know everybody and their aunt is a critic and some people love it, some people will hate it. And if if you create art, I mean, obviously some people do, but if you create art with the, the thought in your mind is I'm making this for a certain set of people or I really hope they like it, I think you immediately compromise yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, completely agree.
1: And you have to stay true to your vision, your story, your message, whatever it is you're trying to do. The minute you... Compromise, for for whatever reason, I think I think that the art form will lose something, and on, and people say oh, he took a lot of takes. He you know took him ages to shoot sequences, and it would depend a lot of it on if the actor knew their lines. <laughs> um, and I could tell you a few stories there. But um, the most expensive part of making a f- film is hiring the stars, hiring crew, and shooting on location or building sets. That's the expensive bit, mm-hmm. right? Now you've got all that. You've paid all that. Everybody's standing around. The cheapest part of all of it is the film. Running through the camera. Mm.
0: The physical film. The physical yeah.
1: film. Why not shoot it? Because you've got them all here now. And because he had a very small crew, a lot of whom worked with him over and over again. So you didn't have vast amounts of people. Obviously, if you've got a huge film like Barry Lyndon, then you have to have bodies on the ground. But yeah. a small crew on a on a more intimate movie, say... For instance, like Ice Wide Shut, you can afford to have a small crew. And so therefore, you know, because every minute, I mean, talk, talk about time is money, that, that the clock is ticking. And he, he always brought his films in around budget. They took longer, but he didn't very go vastly over budget at all. When people say, oh, it took so long, it must have cost a fortune. I think 2001 cost something like 10 million pounds. <laughs>
0: Back in 1968, 1968 yeah, it's a blows money. my mind that that film is 50 years old next year.
1: Yeah, tell me about it. I was 14. I went to the premiere, <laughs> and in, in New York, and we were sitting. My sisters and I were sitting in the front row, and it was like because we'd been to the set and we'd you know we'd played with the chimpanzees and we'd you know walked on the centrifuge and we'd done all the stuff that film directors' daughters get to do. Yeah. And, um, just and just call him dad on set, <laughs> and. So there we were, sitting, all you know, all dressed up, sitting in the front row of the big theatre. I think it was the Lowe's Cinema in New York. And all the Blue Rinse Brigade, all the, you know, the paid <laughs> guys were sitting there, all the the, the, the suits, the yeah. suits were there. And at, up until that point, s- science fiction movies had been a... had bug-eyed monsters. And sort of, yeah, they didn't take it seriously. And I think what a lot of people forget is that man hadn't actually landed on the moon yet. Yeah. That didn't happen until the following year. Mm-hmm. So... It was it was an extraordinary experience because they so many people didn't like it, didn't get it. And we were sitting there going, oh, this is what he's been doing. You know, (laughs) oh, now it's all put together. This is cool.
0: Because you've seen, you know, you've seen the back end. Now you see the front end. Well, I'd also
1: seen some rushes, Mm. you know, and I'd seen how they were making some of the, the now called Stargate sequences. You know, that is ink and paint in water. And it
0: looks amazing. I know. It looks. And It was like art school experimenting. I mean, it was so recently, cool. and that's when it hit me that that film is fifty years old next year, and the effects and the the photorealism looks so, just looks infinitely better than some of the CGI crap that's coming out now. Can't
1: see no strings. <laughs> Sorry. You can't see no strings. <laughs> no,
0: but <laughs> no, you genuinely can't. You
1: genuinely can't. Um, and f- actually, it was quite nice because I was working at Pinewood on, I don't know a bond movie probably and dick donner was just setting up the very first superman movie oh richard donner okay richard yeah. donner and um he, he had a crew showing for his crew of 2001 and he, invi- he invited me because he knew i was there and i got chatting to him in the bar as you do <clears throat> and he invited me and the reason he did that so this was so 2001 came out 1968 and this film the the first Superman movie with um Christopher Reeve was shot in nineteen seventy six. Yeah. And he was still showing two thousand one as the goal. Mm. We have got to be as good as this. It's got to look as good as this. You know but I don't it, think that's stopped. stopped. I don't think that's stopped. I don't think that's two films
0: in my head now. Um Interstellar mm-hmm. um parts of um Batman vs Superman. Mm-hmm. Callback back massively to mm-hmm. your dad's film mm.
1: i see tips of the hat to stanley all the time mm. and even in the way a shot is framed or like in um, independence day where jeff goldblum is in the alien computer and you've seen independence day right the first one uh-huh.
0: not for a number of years
1: okay so he and will smith are in the alien spacecraft towards the end when towards the his end his MacBook, when they're yeah, about yeah. to save the day and he opens up his macbook and it's a picture of hell and says good morning Dave. oh yes <laughs> and you missed that um in twister which was a fu- which is a fun movie when the the hurricane is about to, tornado is about to hit the small town and there's a um open air cinema and they're showing the shining yes and as the thing gets ripped to shit you know the sh- the, 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 you you see the axe the... coming through. Yeah, there you attacking go. Attacking with the axe. Yeah. Um, does it make you
0: feel proud when you see things like that?
1: Of course it does. You know. I go. <laughs> Do a little dance in my chair. Ee-e-e. Go, Dad.
0: That's, that's amazing.
1: Because he's been so influential. So many of his films were groundbreaking you know he was the first person to use a steadicam he was the first person to use front projection with the 3m screen for 2001 the opening sequence he was the first person to light a set just with candles he did a lot of groundbreaking stuff and also he dealt with extremely big topics Mm -hmm. and i used to say oh can't you make a musical can't you make a kid's film can't you do this oh well and his, his standard answer was find me a good story did it ever
0: frustrate him that, as 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 his career rolled on, it was taking longer and longer between movies?
1: Well, it of course it did, and he wished he he'd made more. There was working on Napoleon, and he did that for two years. You know, collating material and gathering. He has one of the largest personal collections of books on Napoleon and photographs of artwork. Wow. And which is now in the Archive at the University of the Arts London. London College of Communication. London College of Communication, where the Stanley Kubrick Archive is now housed, and you can go and see it and study all the materials there. And everything that's in the travelling exhibition is not there presently, all the kind of juicy stuff like the props and the masks and so that's the you, Oscars. That, and that's where you take it from? No, it, it never went. So what happened, oh, okay. we put the Stanley Kubrick exhibition together, which has been... It's now going to Copenhagen on the 21st of September. It's just left Mexico City. Before that was in San Francisco, was in Los Angeles. So it's traveling the world. And it is full of photographs, posters, scripts, costumes, all sorts. So when, when the exhibition is finally, you know, had its last showing somewhere in the world, all of that stuff will go back to the archive in London.
0: And then if you want, you can take it out again and go back on the road.
1: Yeah. I should live so long. <laughs> but I, I, what was the original question? I can't remember. Oh, we the were question. talking about the, the time between films. Oh, yes. So in that in the archive, it also shows all the work he did on Napoleon, and it shows all the work that he did preparing a film called Aryan Papers. And he also spent a lot of time working on AI. Mm. So it's not that he wasn't doing nothing. It was, he was working on things, but they didn't work out. So he stopped working on Napoleon because Rod Steiger made a film called Waterloo, which bombed at the box office and the studios wouldn't back him. Oh. And they said, look, you know, the audiences don't like films where people write with feathers. But he always thought that he would do Napoleon. It was a thing that he was going to do a big one project. day. It was a huge passion project. He also worked on Aryan Papers, um, which didn't happen because Schindler's List came out. And they didn't want two Nazi movies in a row. Mm. And uh, my mum says it was actually making him incredibly depressed. And she said, you know, how do you even film that? How do you show it? How do you get the actors to be that?
0: The atrocities.
1: Everything. How yeah. do you get them to be that thin? Yeah, You can't. And nobody would believe it. And so she said she was very glad that he never made the movie because he was getting more and more depressed. I, I came into this house one time and there were all these books lying around and I just opened one page and I had nightmares for weeks so I'm glad he didn't make it then he was he was also working on AI he'd done a lot of work and he had fantastic artwork and fantastic um, concepts being produced and I think he didn't do it because the what he wanted to do wasn't quite technical enough I mean he was going to wait for for, for science to catch up with him uh, so the CGI that he would have used mm. wasn't around at the time. It just wasn't good enough. So he didn't know what he d- wanted, real David or a robotic David. It, the robotics weren't good enough. Did he want a, a real Teddy, a CGI Teddy, a cartoon? T- you know, it wasn't quite right. So then he went on to making eyes wide Chat, which is something that he'd been wanting to make for you know 30 years he was always
0: busy he was always busy it was just a case of pinpointing which one he wanted to do yeah and it goes back do. to
1: what i said originally is if you're if you are going to spend a huge amount of time money and effort making a film you've got to really love it yeah so there were lots of projects that were abandoned and he was unhappy. He of course he wanted to make more movies. And when he told us that he wanted Steven to direct uh, you know AI, we were kind of, you know, our chins hit the floor and he said, "Nah, he'll put more bums on seats than I do and I'll make it I'll make it too dark." As it happens, I think he made a, yeah, a really good job of it.
0: AI is a pretty dark movie. Yeah,
1: it's really dark and I I love it. I think it's great. It's
0: pretty I mean there's uh-huh. some pretty shocking stuff in there where the you know when she leaves the kid in the woods. I world. know it's
1: heartbreaking. Yeah, So absolutely, and, and and the Teddy character, the way that the whole way they did it was fantastic. How there weren't a zillion off toys of that, I'll <laughs> never know.
0: <laughs> well, he's not the most friendly of teddy bears, is he? He has a he has a voice of an old man, so yeah. he doesn't lend himself no. But he in was, the same way that Buzz Lightyear but think does.
1: How, no, but think how many times Teddy actually really helps him throughout the movie he really helps him a lot
0: hmm. he's his Jiminy Cricket uh-huh.
1: there yeah. you go there you go <laughs> see if only if it was a musical uh. <laughs> um,
0: does it still piss you off that he is still referred as cold misogynistic hermit that these words still go round and round and round
1: yes <laughs> I mean, I'm going to keep this clean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, don't yes. worry, this is, this is not a family
0: show. <laughs> no,
1: no, it really pisses me off. It really pisses me off. And the day he died, well, the day after he died, and even actually even the day he died, and it was on the news, and then it was, the next day it was in the paper, and all this crap was coming out about the sort of person that he was, and we were crying again. You know, first of all, crying that he had died, mm. suddenly and then crying because people were saying all these hideously awful things about him. See, so it's bad enough when your dad dies, but when it's so public, it, it makes it 10 times worse. So, you know, we had the funeral at home, and, and then I discovered the internet, and I discovered all these fan sites and all these people saying really silly things about him. <clears throat> so I started my crusade, if you like, to say, you know, this is not true, and this is a mistake, and this is just somebody writing an article because they didn't get to interview him, and they were pissed off, and they wrote the first thing that came to the top of their head, or they didn't like the movie, or whatever, um, and then my uncle made a documentary, um, Living in Pictures, Life in Pictures, Life in "Pictures," yeah, which was great, and put a little, you know, put a lot of this to rest, but people... They like to read bad things about people. It's always much more fun to read that somebody's a shit than somebody didn't go to bed until the cats were at home. You know, I mean, he was a nice man. He was a good father. He was a loving husband. He adored his dogs. He adored his cats. You know, he liked to sleep in his own bed at night. That doesn't make great copy. Mm. Is it's it
0: lazy journalism. Of course, it's
1: lazy journalism because they don't give a shit. Mm. They've been told to fill some column inches, and they'll put in what they think is more interesting. So, of course, it's going to be more interesting to say, "Oh, he shoots tourists from his bedroom window," <laughs> what? or "Oh, uh, yeah, didn't know no, that one. no, no, yeah, it is though he was he sued for that one anyway. That was, I think, Punch. I don't know, can't remember. Um, and they go in, in one ear and out the other now. But uh, people said such unbelievably horrible things about him, and that I go, "Hey, you know, you're talking about my dad here." Mm. I mean, I know he's not my biological father, but he raised me from the ages four and he's the only daddy I have. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, you know, that name fits.
0: Is it, is it a case that, you know, when someone is in the public eye, it's almost like the public believe that person belongs to them? Absolutely.
1: And I, I have seen, because of my life, I have seen how movie stars' lives are and, and, and the more famous and the more sexy and the more glamorous they are, the worse it is. I would not do that for a million years. Sure, the payoff is nice. You get lots of houses and you're famous and da-da-da. But the pressure to be perfect Mm. is so huge. And, you know, I have only recently started to have my bloody picture taken because we are now talking about Dad and we are promoting the exhibition which is Travelling the World. I mean, I've never had so many photographs taken of myself. And it's just just kills me um well thank you for posing today (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's hard it's hard to be famous and people own you they think they own you they have you think of the movie stars who are really super famous who aren't regularly in the newspapers who aren't regularly being criticized oh my god she's got cellulite oh my god she's having an affair oh my god she did this or oh look what he did or, look, here is so and so walking out of the supermarket. Don't look, they look like shit because they're, you know, they're in their tracksuit and sunglasses. Mm. And I think that's why actors always marry actors. I mean, if you go into certain parts of Los Angeles, you go to supermarkets, all full of actors because they hang out with each other because it's safe. Yeah. Because you because don't have, you haven't got network. some. Well, yeah, because you haven't got some mum. I think not have your autograph. Or didn't you used to be somebody else who you're not, you know?
0: Is that life that he wanted to avoid? Is that why he was a bit. I mean, he was quite press-shy, wasn't he?
1: No, he was no? publicity-shy publicity for himself. Shy. Okay. He wanted people to see his movie. So whenever he made a movie, he would do press, and he would do interviews, and he would choose intelligent people and give an in-depth, in, in depth, proper interview about the movie. Okay. I, did, right. I, didn't, I didn't realize not he, he didn't would. do... I'm Stanley Kubrick and I'm hanging out at Langens. I'm so groovy. He didn't do that. I mean, he could go into St. Albans and buy his socks and nobody would bother him. And so he had the perfect world where he was known for his art and his face was anonymous, so anonymous, in fact, that a guy called Alan Conway successfully impersonated him for some time. Oh, wow. And got away with some pretty, you know, free a lot of free males he was not a nice man at oh. all real scuzz bucket and he was um trying to chat up boys posing as stanley kubrick you know i'll be you know you can be in my movie or you know i'm gonna get your band in my movie so as far as i can see he was propositioning young people who wanted to believe he didn't look anything like stanley mm. he didn't even like his movies, he didn't know very much about him at all. He just knew that once he said, Oh, I'm Stanley Kubrick, and because Stanley hadn't been in the had his face in the pictures in, in the newspapers for a while, people wanted to believe they suspended their disbelief because they wanted it to be him so badly. Yeah. And uh, in fact, they made a, a movie with John Malkovich called um, Call Me Kubrick, and uh, yeah, so he was know we said well it's your fault you need to do some press and then this guy won't <laughs> you know won't get away with it yeah oh, no, i can't be bothered and in the end something was done about it but you can't apparently arrest somebody for doing that because he wasn't actually making money he was just being dined wined and dined as as, as someone Cumber. else
0: have you kind of taken over in the sense that you've become the representative of the Kubrick estate I guess you go out do the interviews and you go to the exhibitions
1: um well primarily to begin with it was my mother and my uncle and mm-hmm. my uncle Jan Harlan was executive producer for Stani with Stanley for 30 years so of course he is the numero uno mm-hmm. consultant and my mother did it for years and years and years and she's just she doesn't really like to fly anymore and you know she wants to paint She's done her stint. Yeah. And so she said, okay, it's your turn. You can, ca- can have a break. You, yeah, she's having a well. I mean, she did it for 14 years or 13 mm-hmm. years. And um, so she's painting and she's doing what she wants to do. And uh, so my uncle and I now go and show our faces and go, hi. And this is the show and please enjoy it.
0: <laughs> do you like doing it?
1: I'm getting used to it. I am not a publicity seeker at all. And which is also why I'm so crap at promoting my own jewelry and paintings because I'm so <laughs> really bad at it. Um, but not, but not all creative people are like that, aren't they? Uh-huh. so it's the f- it's it's, you know, I could sell you somebody else's painting. I could sell you somebody else's ring. But I can't sell my own. Oh, my God, do you like it? Really? Oh, my God, that's so much. <laughs> I
0: think I'm a little bit like that with my <laughs> photography.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it, it was, um, of course, it's fun. I got to go to Seoul. I got to go to Mexico City. I went to uh, San Francisco. So I've been to, you know, I- interesting places. That you I've get, never, to you I get to, to travel to...
0: on someone else's dime. There you go. Yeah.
1: But I also meet really interesting people. And what's nice about the the show is that, is is the people who go there. First of all, you have the Altacacca's like me, Mm -hmm. who, who know the movies, know the director, and are genuinely interested or just curious. Then you have the film scholars who also know and want to delve into everything. And then you have the the youngsters who had never even heard of Stanley Kubrick before. And maybe they're photographers, maybe they're film students. Maybe they just walked in because it was raining. Who knows? But it's very lovely to see the responses that they have. And the show does really well. I mean, the last day in Mexico City, there were still queues around the block which is going somewhere. It was in Los Angeles at LACMA for eight or nine months. And uh, it's been to Melbourne and Toronto and Seoul and you know I'm, and Paris and Rome. It's fantastic. So what is interesting is that, the, of course, the, thing, the things in the exhibition are the same things, but each museum and each space and each curator and each nationality Brings something new to it—the way they set it out, Mm. the space that it's in, the atmosphere that it has. So it's always new, it's always different, it's always fresh, and I always see something I didn't see before.
0: What do you think he would have made of things like the exhibition, and you know, the big Stanley Kubrick Archives book, or the Napoleon book that that came out, or even the the Daydreaming with Stanley Kubrick uh, exhibition Mm. that was at the, which was awesome. Yeah, where was it at? Somerset House. Somerset House. It was amazing, amazing stuff. Uh But what would he have made of that? Constantly looking back at someone's work.
1: Do you look at books of old paintings? Do you go to museums? Yeah. To see paintings that Mm -hmm. were done hundreds of years ago? Do you, as a photographer, look at books of other photographers' work? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So I think that he would have been thrilled that people are so interested post his his demise and and the fact that all i mean these films are really old now um but if i sit down and watch what my kids would call a gray movie you know black and white granny a granny movie (laughs) a gray movie a gray gray movie movie. (laughs) i remember when they were little and i and i they knew that i'd worked in the in the film business and um I think a Humphrey Bogart movie was on television with Catherine Hepburn, and they said, oh, did you work on that, Mum? Because <laughs> <laughs> as far as they were concerned, you know, if it was a <laughs> if movie, it's old, mom, it's old. if it's old, it's old. <laughs> which um, of, but which... I think he... Sorry, just to backtrack a bit. When, when, the ex, when the Frankfurt Film Museum first approached Christiana and Jan with the idea of having... Christiana an ex- being your mum. My mum, yeah. yeah. With the thought of having an exhibition, Mummy's initial reaction was... Oh, going through old yellow papers and, you know, seeing old stuff just makes it like the person died all over again. And then she thought about it for a while and she said, on the other hand, I'd really like to see Picasso's paint box, you know, or Chagall's studio. Because she's an artist. And so whatever art it is you're in, you're always going to be interested in the work of people who went before you, especially mm-hmm. people who, who use, whose work you admire. So she said, okay, let's do it. So then we had an archivist for nine months who went through all the boxes. And I keep saying it, but there is a reason that Stanley never threw anything away. All the materials, all the research materials, the press, fan letters, hate mail, costumes, you name it, were stored in boxes and went with us wherever we went. He kept it all. You don't do that just because you don't like to stuff throw throw stuff away. You
0: You do it for a reason. I think
1: maybe in the long term he he was thinking long term. He was a chess player after all, and I'm sure he would have thought one day this is going to come in useful. Maybe I don't know. I wasn't in his head, but there is a. You know, when I get fed up of things and I don't need them anymore. I throw them away and when I moved out of here and I moved to my own house and I had to make room and I had to throw stuff away, I threw away all my old art school drawings because most of them were shit. <laughs> In your opinion. Yeah, but and they said, oh, no, 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 you mustn't throw your work away. And I said it keeping my old art school work is like a famous pianist recording their scales practice. It's you know, it's how you it and but the musicians want to result, hear that anyway. No,
0: I think they maybe would. musicians like I would I would love what, to see Rachmaninoff
1: sitting there and and playing the wrong note. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know, but anyway, it's gone now. So, um, like I, I I would
0: love to see you know the various photographers that I like. I'd love to see the outtakes. Their... The yeah. outtakes
1: that's slightly different because. I don't know, maybe it's just too personal. Because With all the stuff that was left over from the, f- from the films, that all got destroyed. Anything that wasn't in the movie was destroyed.
0: Which of his movies, for you, has the, the most personal connection?
1: Basically, they are all what was happening as I was growing up. So I'm connected in one way or another to all of them. I think, probably, eyes wide shut, I would have to say, at the moment, because he had finished it, then he died mom and i were working on the poster campaign which they didn't go with in the end they but they, we did we went with one thing and they didn't like it and then we had to do something else but we were incredibly involved and the subject matter of the film was well it's a it's it's a human subject matter isn't mm. it jealousy and love and mistrust and jealousy and stuff and and, and i think that um it's something that everybody's a, a an expert on. Because, you know, if you've ever been in a relationship, you will have had some sort of feelings that makes you an an expert. And at the time, I wasn't going, I wasn't very happy. And so it, it was very personal to me in, in many, many ways. I think it's a an astonishingly good film. I think it was incredibly misunderstood. It was because Daddy died before they made the trailer. Um... It was mis-sold, and I, th- and I think that the audiences were expecting some big, you know, Cruz Kidman sort of bonk-fest movie and sort of a s- salacious peep- peeping Tom kind of movie at these two enormous movie stars. And, and when it was actually an incredibly serious adult and thoughtful movie, mm. they were surprised and probably disappointed. And if he had made the film trailer the way he had wanted to, had he not died... I think people would have gone to the movie with a more realistic expectation of what they were about to see. Having said that, it was much more appreciated in Europe, in the United States. I don't think they they got it at all. In Japan, it was a huge success. And of course, they always have people sitting out, when a movie opens, and they have people standing outside the cinema to see the reaction of the punches as they come out. You said all the couples were coming out holding hands. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's a really good reaction absolutely considering what's in the movie exactly
1: exactly and some people thought that it was not sort of outrageous enough I mean the orgy sequence when I first saw it I was I was in deep shock I couldn't imagine anything more horrible um, when I saw it and then it was people think that the studios edited the film because Stanley had died they didn't you don't you don't edit a director's work Mm. And he had um, a contractual obligation to produce a mo- uh, an R rated movie. Oh, wow. So he would have re edited those scenes for the American market. So instead of the um, disapproved of frontal stuff, he probably would have just done a reverse shot on mm, Tom. Tom's reaction. Yeah. His POV instead of all the sort of you know the thrusting stuff that upset them so much. So what they did is they just put digital figures in front.
0: Ah, I don't think I've seen that. No, cut. no, no,
1: no. Well, they, they, that's what they saw in the United States because they didn't want to see the rompy pumpy that was going on in the room.
0: You guys are unhappy with that.
1: No, no, no. The American censor didn't want it. He had no. no to I'm
0: saying you unhappy with the digital figures.
1: Well, what else could we do? You can't cut the movie. I mean, it was it was the least worst option.
0: What was the last of his films that you watched?
1: What is recently? It? Yeah. Oh. Um. Oh, I think it was *Full Metal Jacket*. Actually, I was showing it to somebody who'd never seen it.
0: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What was their reaction? Whoa. <laughs> is no, that it's is that actually. a big pleasure now that you get to show these films to people who had never seen them before, and yeah. you watch their reaction?
1: Of course. The thing is, if you're showing a film to somebody. And they realize your connection, they're not going to say, well, I thought that was shit. Well, that was boring. They're going to be nice. So I would rather not subject anybody to that. You know, it's not exactly like a cook producing a meal that mm. nobody likes.
0: Which of his films do you feel you've, you've kind of seen enough of that you go, it's not, it's not a case that you hate it, but a case of, I probably don't need to see that one. Maybe as much as I'd probably watch the others.
1: Mm. Well, I've seen 2001 a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily because, well, I do like it. I do think it's it's an incredible film. But I've seen it a lot for various reasons, because it's had a showing on the big screen, or because they've had the live um, orchestra and choir, which was the most amazing experience. So they had this special print made of 2001 without the music, but all the dialogue and sound effects, obviously. And now you have the the conductor and the choir and the orchestra performing the music, but it has to be absolutely spot on because it has to follow the film. So yeah. the conductor is standing on his podium with a digital readout. I mean, he is literally conducting to the second, mm-hmm. which is something uh, amazing. And I saw
0: the I saw the E. T. one at the Royal Albert Hall. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And I missed the two thousand one um, mm. because I was here okay. on the art course. That's <laughs> oh. so your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: it, it was incredible, and the music is so strong. I mean, when, when Also Sprach Zarathustra is playing mm. and they have all those cellos, you, it, you have a visceral reaction. There is a vibration in the room. You can feel it. And then the the, the choirs get up when, you know, singing the Ligetti and atmospheres and everything. It is absolutely mind blowing.
0: If you want to see the portraits I've shot of Katharina, head to www.sftl.photos. Also, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. We always end the podcast with a quiz. Your face just dropped. <laughs> so, Don't do this to me. Here we go. Who played Selina in Supergirl? Selina. Selina. So who played Selina? She was kind of sorceress. Oh, witch. Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway. Who directed Dark Crystal? Another one Jim of the Hansen. films you worked on sorry who Jim Henson and who else
1: Frank Oz yes
0: um, in the Muppet movie who cameo does Hollywood studio executive Lou Lord big boisterous American director pass awesome Wells
1: did he yeah oh, okay
0: You may- maybe you went on set that day okay there you go <laughs> in Barry Lyndon which leg does Barry lose
1: his left leg yeah
0: and what part did you play in helping your dad fake moon landing <laughs>
1: I'm not even going to answer that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Katharina, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. This has been really good fun. This is how we end the podcast. I've been Robert Gershenson. And I've been Catherine Kubrick. We'll shoot you later.